Let's grab your Bible, turn back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is in uh, right about the middle of your Bible. If you aren't familiar, just take your Bible, open it up to the middle. It's going to probably go to Psalms, and then you just go to the right, two books. There you are, Ecclesiastes. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. There's one in the pew in front of you. Just grab one there. That's on page 382. You're going to get a lot more out of this if you follow along. Um, we don't, um, I don't do the, uh, maybe like the type of thing you might see Andy Stanley do where the outline is kind of hung there for your attention on the screen. I want the Bible to serve that purpose, so I'll, I'll ask you to look back at the Bible so you can, the structure will emerge out of the text, and you'll get a lot more out of this if you will have a Bible open in front of you. If you don't want to do that, you just take your phone and go to a Bible on your phone. Um, there are many free apps, just do that. And go to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 9 today, and the preaching portion will be verses 1 through 12, 1 through 12. That's what I'll read. So I'll ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes 9, beginning of verse 1. <clears throat> These are the words of King Solomon, inspired by God, God's word to us through Solomon. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, but, but are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath." This is an evil, and all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. All the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more, more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun." because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like a fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> Many of you are probably wondering, uh, given the portion of this text, uh, that I'll be preaching probably till one o'clock, right? Um, no, this is a bigger portion, but we don't want to get lost in all of the details and miss everything, right? We don't want to, we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. 
Um, so we won't hit every single detail here, or we might miss the impact of what God wants us to hear in these verses. Okay. <clears throat> Let me tell you about the day that I was most alive in my entire life. The day that I was most really just living, most alive. The day that I lived like never before. That was the day that I almost died. It was an exceptionally cold day in January in northern Kansas, northeastern Kansas, in the single digits. And that is a, a, uh, a perfect time to go duck hunting, which was my favorite hobbies at the time. So me and one of my best friends, Matt Brown, he's my duck hunting partner, the one who introduced me. We would go hunting on the Kansas River. Kansas River would be completely frozen over. But where the Delaware River would meet the Kansas River, there would be a spot of open water. And it's the only open water probably for, you know, 20 miles. I don't even know. So the, the ducks would just come in like a tornado. So, but to get there, because everything's completely frozen, we would just have to, like, ruck it in, and, like drag sleds behind us a mile up river. So we'd go, you know, usually up farmland and then get down. And we had amazing time, great hunt. When it got over, we were like, man, uh, we just do not want to drag all this stuff back out a mile over that snowy farm land. It was just awful. So we said, you know what? The river's frozen, so let's drag it all down the river. Now, that sounds like a crazy idea to you probably, but you should know the Kansas River is like not very deep. It's like the Canadian River you see over here. It's mainly sand. It's like sand and very short pieces of water usually. Um, and so to get up there when it's not frozen, you take what's called a mud, a mud boat, like a mud motor with a flat bottom boat, and you just go through that mud and you're jumping. It's, it's a great time. So we say, all right, we'll just walk down. It'll be easy, easy to drag the sled. So we get all the way back down to across from where we park, and I come over to the edge of the ice. There's a tiny bit of open water, and of course, we just know that it's probably three feet deep. So I'll go to the edge and I'll just jump in and I'll, we'll walk across like we've done a million times. Well, I get to the edge of the ice and then immediately the ice just breaks. It breaks and I go under. And so I expect to hit and just land and have the, you know, the water be at my knees or something or at my waist, but I don't. I go all the way under the water, um, but I pop up because I have neoprene waders on. But there's a problem. There is a current. So the current is pulling me under the ice and I'm starting to think, okay, like this, what do I got to do? It's going to pull me under. I'm going to have to hold my breath until I get to a shallow enough. And then somehow I'm going to have to try to squat up through the ice and punch my way through. Um, but I'm very aware that I am probably going to die if I go under. And at just the last second, before I slip all the way under, a, I feel something touch my hand. It's a, it's a pull. So I grab it. And Matt is on his stomach. He's got a little decoy pole. He had laying on his stomach, crawled out, gave me a pole, and he pulls me out. So now I know there's a good chance I'm going to freeze to death now. So, but I also know um, that if I just keep running, that's an impossibility. So we, we run, and I run all the way back up. And I'm like, if I don't stop, I'll be all right. So just keep running, run back up, get over, get in the truck, get out, get back home, go home. And I'm going to tell you, I was more alive at that moment than I've ever been alive, ever. Got to sit in front of the fireplace with Angie, Drake, Brooke, Vangeline, 
was not even an idea at that time. This is long ago. And Angie made me chicken and noodles. The best food I've ever had in my life. Better than anything any five-star restaurant could ever produce. Had a cup of coffee. Just sat there. There was nothing in my mind. Like there was no theological problems to solve. There was no, no, nothing in the news that would give me anxiety. I didn't care about any of that. There was no cell phones. Like none of that mattered to me at all. I wasn't stressed about what was coming up next week. I didn't care about what happened previously in my life. Nothing mattered. I was simply alive. I was simply living. And it's all because of death. It's all because I almost died. Now, Solomon, what he does here in our text, I think, is really just simply brilliant. It's, Solomon is the wisest man ever lived. So if you're not familiar with where we are in the Bible, we're in the Old Testament. The author is King Solomon, who's the king in Israel. There's King David. You probably heard of him. His son is King Solomon. He's also known as the wisest man to ever live. And he is reflecting back on life. Later, uh, He's older now. He's reflecting back on life. And in the section we are now, he's, he's giving us good wisdom. He's already kind of come at this angle where he wants to tell us about living by showing us the perplexity of life. So we we see in the world that things don't make sense. They'll be a good person and, you know, they'll suffer their whole life and they'll die. They're, They're poor, they're not wealthy, but then you have a wicked person, an evil person, and maybe everything goes perfect in their life. And we say, what is this? This doesn't make sense. This doesn't, this shouldn't be how things work. And so last week, he even hit on this. Given the perplexity of all of this, I've got advice for you. Here's what I recommend. I recommend that you just live and you just enjoy the life that you have. And that was a great lesson for us. And now he does something similar. When I originally encountered this text the first time, several times, I thought, this is all about death. But then I realized, as I paid closer attention, that Psalm is teaching us the same thing. He wants us to focus on something else, but he's using death to teach it. So what he's done here is he structured this text that we have in what's called a chiasm. Now that's just a theological term. Um, You're not going to be able to forget it though after I tell you what it's like. A chiasm is a way of structuring text so that you have it, it's bracketed. And the middle portion is the main point. And so you can think of it like a theological sandwich, okay? There's a theological sandwich, and so the bread is not the main point. The meat is the main point. So if you've got a turkey sandwich, it's not a bread sandwich, right? So think of it this way. This text is a life sandwich, okay? And the bread is death. So if you look back at your Bible, here's what you see. Verses 9, 1 through 6, that's the certainty of death. But the same point is being made at a different angle in 11 through 12. That's about the unpredictability of death. But in the middle, verses 7 through 10, that's what he really wants you to get. And that's the command to live. So that's the way our text will go today. First two points will have to do with death. Then we'll get to the middle point. We'll come back to it, 7 through 10. And it's all about living. Now, what difference can this possibly make in my life? You know, come in here and sit down and listen to me and, you know, uh, talk to you about the Bible for 45 minutes, maybe an hour. I don't know who, we'll see what happens. 
Why should you pay attention and not tune out? Because many of you aren't even living. Many of you are just existing. You just wake up and you just exist. God doesn't want you to do that. God wants you to truly live. And if you pay attention to this text, it might be the means that God uses to snap you out of it and say, you've got today to live. So get on with living. Even in a dark and gloomy world where there's so many things to distract us, cause us stress, hectic, God wants you to, even in this crazy world, to enjoy life and to actually live. Psalm 118.24, it says this. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amazing verse. You've probably heard it. You've probably seen it on a little poster or something. Now, my goal today is to get you to the place where that verse is a reality for you. When you walk out of here, that you would rejoice that today is the day the Lord has made, and let us rejoice and be glad in it. So let's go through this text. Let's look at this passage, this bigger passage. Don't worry as we don't get bogged down in the details. Let's look at it. The first thing we want to look at is, number one, the certainty of death. So if you're taking notes today... Number one, the certainty of death. The certainty of death, it, it is one thing that everybody in here has to look forward to. Isn't that great? Um, and so we often make light of it. We often will make light of it to help us cope with it. This was in uh, New York Times. Uh, can't, couldn't find the date, but a New York Times writer wrote this. Wanting, he said he wanted his body to go to science, so he was going to have it sent to Harvard after his death. And here's what he said, quote, because my parents wanted me to go there, and that's the only way that I could get in. Um, and we make jokes like that because death makes us uncomfortable. So we either don't ever think about it till it comes, or we make jokes about it. We make light of it. Uh, we put it out of our minds completely if we can. But we don't want to do that. And God doesn't want us to do that. Solomon doesn't want us to do that here because death is a powerful teacher. It's a powerful motivator. If we come face to face with the reality of it, the certainty of it, it can, have, it can become the key to unlock us really living and not just waking up and existing. So let's see what God has to say about it. Look at verse 1. If you look back at your Bible... You'll see that he says, All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So he right off the bat affirms yet again, as he's done over and over, the absolute sovereignty of God over his people. God is absolutely sovereign in control over the lives of his people. It's an important place to start. Um, we need to be reminded about this, that, God's, that we are in God's hand and he loves us and he cares for us. It's, it's a truth. For those that love God, those called according to His purpose, all things do work for our good. It's not, a, it's not this cliche thing. It's a truth. Romans 8.28 is true. We know that for those who love God, all things work for good. And the same truth could be said this way in Deuteronomy 33.3, that, that yes, He loves His people, His holy ones were in His hand. So they followed in his steps, and they received direction from you. Or as Solomon would say here, what does he say? All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. 
a great place to start, reminded of the sovereignty of God. Because the latter part of verse 1 communicates this, that the love of God or the hatred of God toward a person in this world cannot be judged by external appearances. If you look back at your text, you'll see that it says it very clearly. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know both are before him. So you can't look at a person in this world and say, God loves that person. He's blessing them. Look at them. They're prosperous. I mean, look at, look at their family. Look at their life. You can't do that. As we've already seen many times that in this fallen world, many times people that don't love God, that maybe even hate him, their lives are pretty good. And, there are, and many times the people who love God, they serve him with all their heart. You look at them and you say, God, God's favor is not on that person. They're always sick. Maybe they have cancer. Their family members are always dying. And they're poor. So you can't look in the world and go, God loves that guy. Uh, he doesn't like that guy. You can't do it. Um, look, at, look back at your passage. You'll see. Verse 2, it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean, the unclean, him who sacrifices, him who does not sacrifice. He goes on, he lists several, righteous and wicked. What, what's the same event that happens to everyone? Right? Not only can you not look in the world and say, hey, uh, God loves that one, he doesn't love that one, but there's one thing you can see, the same event happens to all. So righteous and the wicked, what happens to them? They die. Good and the evil? die. Clean and unclean, die. The one who sacrifices, the one who doesn't sacrifice, what's that? That's the religious person. The one who is in Solomon's time going to temple, doing sacrifices, worshiping God. The one who doesn't sacrifice, one who sacrifices, die. The good one, the sinner, die. <laughs> in the same event, no matter what, happens to everyone. And we do a pretty good job of putting out of our mind until something happens, like COVID, like something like COVID, then you have weird things like, I was just sitting with this guy uh, watching a high school baseball game. Um, he's dead now? Did that stuff happen in your life? It happened in mine. Um, and then you can't help but think about death. Uh, World, War, World War III. A lot of talk about World War III nowadays. I've been texted by some people. You think this is, you think this is World War III? You think this is going to happen? Whatever. Um, I don't know, you know, but... Um, a lot of people worried about that it is, and that maybe they're going to get drafted, and maybe a lot of people are going to die. So we can put it out of our mind until it comes. Look at verse 3, the latter half. Look back at your Bible. It seems almost like he just switches topics, like he's got like some type of attention deficit disorder. All this, I, also, the hearts of children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Where did that come from? Well, Solomon, remember, he likes to like sprinkle in here little echoes of the beginning of your Bible, the Genesis account of creation, and then the account of the fall. How did the world end up like this? God made the world very good. Everything was very good, no pain, no death, no sickness, no disease, no natural disasters. That's not the world you see. And so he recounts the fall often, but he does this through like these little echoes of Genesis. Well, this case, I think, seems to me a clear echo of Genesis 6, which, if you remember, is right before the flood, Noah's flood. 
God says this in Genesis 6-5, The Lord saw all the wickedness of man and that it was great on the earth and that every intention and thought of his heart was only evil continually. So there's God's assessment. Pre-flood, all of mankind, are they good people? Are their hearts good? Their hearts are filled with evil and wickedness. And so how did Genesis 3, the fall, affect people's hearts? How badly did it affect the human race? Really bad, right? Why do all people die? Because all people sin. That's God's answer. Romans 6, 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to what Matthew Henry said concerning this. The little difference there is between the conditions of the righteous and the wicked in this world, there is one event to both. Is David rich? So is Nabal. That's a bad guy in your Bible. Is Joseph favored by his prince? Yes. So is Haman. He's another bad guy. Is Ahab killed in battle? He's a bad guy. Yes. So is Josiah, a good guy. The same event happens to them all. Verse 4. What a verse verse 4 is. But he who is joined to the living has hope. If you're alive today, you have hope. And then this colorful portrayal of that reality to support his claim. A living dog is better than a dead lion. What a, what a verse that is. A living dog's better than a dead lion. Now, it might be helpful to understand dogs in the ancient world. They're not like my dog. Right? My dog is amazing. What can I say? You'll just have to meet her, all right? Uh, we, we love that dog. Um, in, the early, in the ancient world, that's not the case. The dogs, they're like pests. They're like scavengers. If you've been to Iraq, you've seen the wild feral dogs, right? They'll eat you. That, that's what we're talking about here. But they're like the low end of the animal kingdom. You could think of them maybe like a rat, a New York City rat in the subway. And he says, it's better to be a dog than a dead lion. Of course, lions are majestic. The king, they're the, the top of the animal kingdom. Even in our day, they're still majestic. Solomon's day, the same. And he says, it's better to be a, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. So if you're alive, like, and your life's not great, um, maybe you would say, and you would have low self-esteem even, and say, I'm at the low end of humanity's class structure. Um, It's pretty good to be alive. Solomon says, you're alive, and that's great. Because while you're alive, you have hope. But when you die, it's all over. That's the proverb. A living dog's better than a dead lion. For the living, verse 5 tells us, look at verse 5, the living know that they'll die. And if you know that you will die, well, then you can change your life before you die. There's time for you. There's time for you to turn and to trust Christ, to love God, to serve God. While you're alive, you have hope. But the the dead have nothing to look forward to. Look, Look at this. Look at the text. As far as life under the sun goes... There's not going to be some reincarnation where you get to do it again. You get to try again. You get a second chance. What you fail to do in this life will stay undone. All the things you want to do that you don't do will stay undone. 
the people you should reconcile to and forgive, that will be solidified in your death. You can't go back, but there's hope while you're alive. And then he says, after you die, you're eventually forgotten. Look, look back at your text, you see it. How bleak is that? Well, you're going to die, and then it's over. And then, and then everybody's just going to forget you. And that's so true. That is so true. Um, you don't remember people that were alive two generations ago. And after you die, you'll soon be forgotten. I don't know where I first heard this, but it's a really good piece of advice and little proverbial saying. So if, if you knew how quickly you would be forgotten after you die, you would care a whole lot less what people think about you. <clears throat> Verse 6 is the nail in the coffin. Dad joke. All of the passions of a person, when they die, they have no share of anything that is done under the sun. So the, the word under the sun, remember, under the sun is life in this world post-fall. When you die, that's it. You have no share anymore in anything that happens in this world. You're not phoning in through a psychic, right? You're not going to reach out beyond the grave and just tell that person you love them. You really care for them. None of that is happening. When you die, there's no more share. And it's an absolute certainty. We need to remember this, that all of us are going to die. It's 100% certain. And everything we left undone in this life will stay that way. We now turn to the second part of this theological sandwich, this chiasm, the unpredictability of death. Look back at your text of verse 11 and 12. It's all about the unpredictability of life and death. Verse 11, he starts to talk about the unpredictability of the world and we live. And remember, the phrase there as you look at it is under the sun. Again, I saw under the sun. And then he lists uh, five examples of unpredictability. So we think if everything were in order, here's how things should work, right? We think, number one, the race should always go to the swift. But he says... That's not the case. So the first example of unpredictability of life is the race is not always to the swift. Shouldn't it be, though? Shouldn't the fastest person always win in a race? 100% of the time. Is that what you see happen? Absolutely not. They could have a bad start. Who knows? But sometimes things happen like people just fall. It's happened in the Olympics several times. One of the most, I guess, sad, I guess that's the correct term, was uh, Lindsay uh, Jake, Jacob Ellis, I think you could say her name. She was in 2006 Olympics. She's a snowboarder, best in the world, no doubt, going to win. Starts off on the race. She's 10 seconds ahead of everybody. Going down, 10 seconds is unreal in Olympics. And on the very last hill, she falls. She loses. It took her like two or three more Olympics before she could win. She eventually won, so happy ending there. But... It doesn't always happen in this world that way, the way we think. Because the world's unpredictable. Crazy things happen. Sometimes people just fall down. That's the point. Uh, now the second one, the battle's not always to the strong. We think it should be. The battle should always go to the strongest army. They should always win. But a whole variety of factors, the unpredictability of the world, it's not the case. It's just our country. America exists. We, we dethroned the superpower of the world that's crazy, right? That should never have happened. We were so far outmatched militarily, 
it is like somebody wrote a fantasy story about the birth of our country, and yet we defeated the superpower, Great Britain, England. Bread's not always to the wise either. Uh, there are a lot of wise people. They aren't wealthy. They're not rich, not prosperous, but we think it should always be that way. They should be able to apply their wisdom to the world around them. We don't see that. The fourth is uh, riches aren't always to the intelligent. We think the richest people should be the most intelligent, but it rarely works that way, right? Um, often those with the most intelligence make the least amount of money. I had a professor who spoke and wrote five languages. He probably made, I would guess, fifty-five, $60,000. You look back, nor favor to the one with knowledge. We would think those that have, that have knowledge would be most favored. You would be able to see who has knowledge, and they would be favored among people, right? We think that's how the world should work. Drake pointed me to this little social experiment that was done where they stuck in a room. In a room, they had six different people, and they allowed them all to interact with each other for 10 minutes, and then they got to decide who they thought was the most intelligent person. But before this, they took an IQ test. So in this IQ test that they had done, they had the results before, but nobody knew. So after talking to each other for 10 minutes, they then tried to rank each other. And wouldn't you know that they all ranked the Marine, the enlisted Marine, last, right? They ranked him last. No surprise there. And they ranked the PhD lady first. But when the results came out, a surprise. Um, the PhD lady was the least intelligent. And the Marine was, I don't know if he was the most, but he was at the top. Um, but we're still going to call them crayon eaters around here, okay? Even if they, they are very intelligent. Because a lot of us, uh, it's just, it's a term of affection almost, right? Like, it's a, it's, it's a kind of an inner camaraderie between the Army and the Marines. But you see the bias. That's the way the world works. Solomon says, it doesn't matter in the end anyway, because they all die. Time and chance happens to them all. So, not only is the world unpredictable, when you die is unpredictable. That's the point. Look, verse 12. For a man does not know his time, like a fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time. You don't know when you're going to die. Death is certain. It's also unpredictable. It's like, a, it's like the fish is swimming along. Life is great. It doesn't know that a net is there or else it wouldn't get trapped, right? Fisherman takes the net. He casts it out, lands in the water, goes down. He scoops up a bunch of fish. Bird goes to a little snare. He's like, oh, what is this little piece of bread? It doesn't see the noose. Sticks its head through. Bird's caught. Unpredictable. And he says, that's, what, that's how your life is. You're living your life today. You're going around. Everything's great. You're probably thinking about where, where are we going to go eat later? What are we going to eat? Um, and he says, uh, it's unpredictable. You're for sure going to die. We know that. Now, what we don't know is if it's happening today or not, right? We don't know that. Death is unpredictable. Time and chance happens to everyone. Now, we shouldn't read chance as if we read chance today. 
Because we, we read the word chance, a time and chance. It's like there's nothing or no one in control. But we know for already eight chapters, how many times already has he repeatedly told us about the sovereignty of God. All our days are in his hands. He's appointed a time for everything, a time to be born, a time to, to die. Chance here is not random meaninglessness that you can't predict. Chance, a, a wooden translation would be like a happening, which would be a weird way to say it. Time and a happening or an occurrence. Time and an occurring happens to everybody, meaning stuff happens. That's what we say. We say stuff happens. Or sometimes we just say life happens. That communicates it even better because it tells you how unpredictable everything is. Life happens to everyone, meaning you don't know when you're going to die. Incredible. And this is why, given the unpredictability of death, if you know someone that died, what happens? One of the stages of grief. Denial. How could it be? They were just here. They were just here. I just had coffee with them yesterday. They can't really be dead. They can't really be gone. Um, because it's so unpredictable. If it was predictable, and you knew it was coming, then there would be... Maybe you would skip that step. There'd be less denial. You'd have come to grips with that reality already. But as it is, death is incredibly unpredictable. Um, I tried to look at some, look for some examples for that. You know, I, Angie almost died once. Tire blew out over here on the highway. She did like a 360. I don't know how the Tacoma didn't flip over, but she ended up in the other road, and a semi almost hit her. But I, could, I, I think this is the best one about unpredictability of life and death. You ever hear of the Pinkertons in the, early, in the Old West, the Pinkertons Detective Agency? Started by Alan Pinkerton. Alan Pinkerton Detective Agency. He simply tripped on the pavement and he bit his tongue, which became infected with gangrene, and he died. Talk about unpredictability. The world is filled with stuff like that. The world is actually filled with... I looked up, I tried to look up, because I was just curious. You know, I'm kind of scared of sharks. I don't know if you guys know that. It seems kind of predictable to me. If you're swimming, you could get attacked by a shark. But I was actually shocked, because I love baseball, that I think more people have been, have been struck by lightning playing baseball than than actually killed by a shark. That was unpredictable for me, right? You just never know. That's the point. There's the certainty of death. There's the unpredictability of death. Now, what's the main thing he wants you to get? That's the third. The command to live. The command to live. Look back at your text in verse 7 through 10, because this is the meat of it all. God through Solomon, God has a message for you. He's put it between two lessons on death. The main point of the section is this. It's time for you to live. It's time for you to live your life today. You don't have a day to waste. You don't have a day to waste because death is certain and death is unpredictable. So God tells you, live your life today. Now, there are five imperatives. Right? Uh, an imperative in your Bible is a command. Okay? 
A command is really not a negotiable. You don't get to negotiate with God when he gives commands. So that's the structure of this last point. I'm going to go through these five. Now, if God commands you something, who are you to argue with God over it? And if you have a problem with what I tell you next, don't take it up with me because I'm just a messenger, okay? I'm just a messenger here. If you've got a problem, you can go talk with God later about it. Let's go through these. Number one is go. Go is, it functions like a wake-up call. Go. You're living as though you have an infinite number of days to live. You don't. Stop thinking that you do. Stop sulking. Stop being unforgiving. Stop being unloving. Live. Forgive. Don't hold on to bitterness. Don't live in the past to what things have happened to you. Don't live in the future as if you know it's coming and one day you'll get around to all the stuff. You may never get on with it. Live right now in the present moment. I had a great phone call this week with another friend of mine. He used to be a pro baseball player. And he, uh, he told me this great advice that his dad gave him. It's very Solomon-like. This is the fifth time we've got advice like this from Solomon. But he... He didn't know that. He just said, this is advice my dad gave me once. He said this. He said, be where you are. Be where you are. That is incredible advice, not just for a professional athlete who's like struggling with, you know, maybe going 0 for 7 or whatever, and then the next day you got to recover and hit. Be where you are. You aren't back there in time. You aren't in the future. You're right there. And when you leave here and you go wherever with your family, be there. Be present where you are. And that's what Solomon has told us over and over and over. And that's what he's telling us again. And he's telling you, go, live. Secondly, he's telling you this other command, eat. I mean, these lessons are so simple and yet so profound, honestly. Go, eat your bread with joy. Eat your bread with joy. That shouldn't be a problem for most of you, right? Shouldn't be a problem for most of you. A lot of you are Baptists, and it's, the joke is almost a cliche. You know, Baptists don't need an excuse to, like, to get together and eat. You know, we got the, we've got the Lord's Supper, we've got baptism, and then we've got like potlucks. It's like, it's like our three things. Um, and it is. It's true. So this should be easy for you to do, but maybe not easy like he says. Because what he wants you to do is to slow down, as we talked about last week. God has lavished you with incredible gifts that you take advantage of every day. One of them is eating. It took me a while to get this lesson because the army taught me how to eat insanely fast. I've told you that. I just eat. It doesn't matter to me what it tastes like. Do I need calories? I'll just shovel it in my face and get on with life. But that's missing life, according to Solomon, because life and joy is found in slowing down and just enjoying what God gives, the common gifts of God, food. You know, last week I gave you the cream soda challenge. Some of you took it, and that was good for you. It was good for your soul. Here's a new challenge. I'm going to call it the show dog challenge, okay? So if you drive to Carnegie, which is about an hour away, you actually will be able to eat the best hot dog on planet Earth. You didn't know that, but you know it now. And for the, for the benefit of your soul, I recommend driving there, ordering a couple show dogs, and eating them slowly, slowly, with your loved one. And that's what Solomon is telling you. Slow down and live in the present moment. Like, the show dogs don't have to taste good. God gave them to you as a gift. 
They could just, as I said before, the only thing you need to know is if it's going to poison you or not. If it doesn't poison you, eat it. That's not how God made you. It's not how he made the world. And it's just a demonstration of his excessive goodness. Like we think, oh, God's not good, my life's whatever. God's been excessively good to you. You just overlook it all. It's all around you. You can find it in food. It must be important if God keeps telling it to us. This is like the fifth time in this strange book. It is a strange book, no doubt. The fifth time, maybe it's important. Maybe we should slow down. But the third one is drink. Again, it's come up over and over and over. So go, eat, drink. Drink your wine with a merry heart. God already approves what you do. And not, not uh, Welch's grape juice. I don't know if you guys know that or not. Right? We're not talking Welch's grape juice here. That's an invention of the Prohibition era. We're talking, we're talking the old school stuff. That was Israel's favorite drink, it seems to me, wine. Uh, God has given wine to make men's hearts glad. There's a verse in your Bible, right? What a gift that God has given, and we just overlook all the time. Psalm 104, 14 and 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and you plant and plants for man to cultivate that they may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen men's hearts. So yes, you should absolutely heed the warnings to not be drunk because that's a sin. Look at the folly of Noah and take, take heed that warning. It's not a good, le- it's, 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 He's not a great character. We're not to look at that and say, ah, I want to be like that. Or Lot, a very, very big warning there. Very big. Just go read it. Um, some crazy stuff happened. If your conscience won't allow you to drink wine, that's okay. I won't try to convince you to do that. Or to bind your conscience in that regard, I would never do that. You should always listen to your conscience 100%. But I will bind your conscience in this. Whatever your favorite drink is, If you drink that drink joylessly, you're sinning against God because he gave it to you as a gift. So take the cream soda challenge if you want, but you receive it with joy, right? You take it with joy. In my opinion, the greatest drink ever invented on planet Earth is not wine. It's the cream soda. You may disagree. Right? Some people think it's root beer. You know Josh King? He like collects root beer. I didn't even know that was a thing. I got, I got like hundreds of flavors of root beer. One day I was over his house and he's like, you know what, I'm going to bring you some special stock. And I thought he's, this guy's coming out with some chilled wine or something. It's probably like 50 years old. He comes out, you know, I was like, he, I was thinking he'd have a towel. And he's like, here it is. This is like my thing. I don't give it to my kids. I don't give it to my wife. I'm giving it to you, friend. I felt pretty special. I felt pretty honored. It was good. It wasn't cream soda, but it was good. If you drink without joy in your heart and thankfulness to God, you disobey God. God's given you everything all around you to enjoy. Go and eat. Go and drink and enjoy your life. That's That's God's command. It's not a suggestion. Most of you are living like you have a thousand years to live and you don't. 
You better get on living and enjoying life and the common things that God gives you. That's what Solomon is telling us. Death is certain. Death is unpredictable. Go, eat, drink, and be happy. Enjoy it all as a gift from God. God already approves what you do. I think another echo of Eden. Because what was pre-fall? Fellowship with God, eating, drinking, fellowship, all excessively good things. And all of those good things pre-fall, almost all of them continue after the fall. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, the world is crazy. It's filled with death and pain and sickness. All kind of terrible stuff. But all of that good stuff still carries over. And you're just not paying attention. God hasn't been frugal with his gifts. God hasn't been frugal with you. He's been excessively good to you. I can't help but think of the Lord's Supper when I read these verses. I just can't. I can't help it. I'm sorry. What has God given us? To remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He gave us the Lord's Supper, which is what? Eating bread and drinking wine. You're to literally have a feast together with other Christians until Christ comes back. Eat your bread, drink your wine with a merry heart. Profess the coming of Christ, that he died for sinners. He didn't die for his own sins, he died for ours. What a blessing of God that he has given to us in the coming of Christ. And then he not only died for our sins, he rose from the dead. And we celebrate it every time we have the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. It shouldn't just be somber times. Sometimes you take the Lord's Supper. I look around and I'm like, did the dog get run over today? Did their dog die? Eat that Lord's Supper with joy. It's a celebration of the life of Christ. And it's a profession. He's coming again. And one day we'll we'll eat with him again. That's what he promises us. What is, what is Jesus's... I'll hold off on that. A thought. I'm going to hold off on that one till the end. There you have three. Go, eat, drink. Number four. Let me back up one. It's not a command, but there's this verse. Let always your garments be white. Let not oil be lacking from your head. Um, white garments and oil are symbols of joy. They're symbols of joy. So he's telling you, to put on your body the symbols of joy. Solomon says, put oil on your face, like that's to make yourself clean and presentable. Put on your white clothes. What do people do when someone, when they're in mourning in the ancient, ancient times? What would they do? They put on sack, sackcloth, gray sackcloth, and put ash on their head. He's telling you to do the exact opposite. Put on your white clothes. Put oil on your face. Put oil on your head. And I find it very interesting, this command, or this, this, this portion is not a command, but what he tells us that we should be doing. Because um, what happens to people when they are depressed? I've been, I read a lot about PTSD and stuff like that. And one of the signs they look for people with PTSD is that, like, they don't change their clothes. They just wear the same clothes for like four or five days. They stop taking baths. They stop showering. Stop caring for their appearance. What does he say? Don't do that. Take a shower. Clean your face up. Put on your nice clothes. Go out into the world. Why? Well, I think, I think this, this is why. My speculation. Because your, your mind and body will catch up with your actions. Now, I've noticed that. If I've been down and depressed, I've been there before. But if I'll 
just force myself to get up, get cleaned up, put on some clothes, presentable clothes to the world, it gets me going. And I start going. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm moving on with my day. And that's the advice. But then we come to this fourth command. So go eat, drink. Now enjoy. Enjoy. The command to enjoy. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Vain life meaning fleeting, like a breath. Like your breath, you exhale when it's cold. That's what he says. That's your life. It's very brief. So in your brief life, enjoy your wife all the days of your life that God has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and all your toil which you toil. Enjoy your wife. Easy advice. Easy command. That's a command from God. Because your wife is a gift. Like all the other gifts God gives, your wife is a gift from God to you. Now, you can switch it up if you like and put your husband in there. Enjoy your husband. He's a gift from God to you. So enjoy your husband today. Enjoy your wife today. Don't, don't, be, don't be ridiculous and try to like hold on to things for even for five minutes. Why? Unpredictability of death. So enjoy your wife. He's undoubtedly, I believe, referencing not just the great companionship that we have, but obviously sex. Marriage being God's chosen and only sphere where sex may be enjoyed freely and without shame or remorse. This is also, I think, without a doubt, an echo to the early chapters of the Bible. It's an echo of the world pre-fall. It's worth reading in its entirety, I think. So I'll do that. I'll read this portion of the Bible just straight through. Genesis 2, 15-25. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good. It's the only thing in God's creation that's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with its flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Now just a side note. You know, it's only recently discovered that your rib will grow back. It's the only bone in your body. How did they know that 4,000 years ago? They couldn't have possibly known. They'll remove it sometimes to do some surgeries, and this one will it'll close back up. I just find that interesting. The rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he, he, he made it to a woman and brought her to the man, and the man said, this is, is like the first song in the Bible. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Enjoy your spouse today. They're a gift from God to you. And you might not get another day. So stop fighting. Stop bickering. 
Stop complaining. Stop playing games with each other. Forgive one another. Love one another. Enjoy one another today. Listen to this quote. This quote right here might make some people that grew up in church uncomfortable, but that's okay because I think it's just perfect. Even Ian Provon, he writes on this, about this passage. There has always been within the Christian tradition an ascetic tendency. That, that means like don't taste, don't touch, don't eat. An ascetic tendency to understand true spirituality as involving the shunning of created things, e.g. food, wine, and sex. So it's truly spiritual if you abstain from all these things. He says, rather than the enjoyment of these things, in thankfulness to God who has blessed us with them, Solomon the preacher here, he helps us to see that that's not true spirituality at all. The latter of what Solomon says is true spirituality. I just love that quote. True biblical wisdom is living in God's world, God's way. We've said that a gazillion times. True spirituality then, and true living in God's world, is you must realize that it does not only include the spiritual world. That's what we think. If I'm going to be a true Christian, I've got to only live for the spiritual. And the material world is bad, so I don't eat, I don't taste, I don't touch. No sex. But that's an absolute error. The problem, people run into this world, there's twofold. One error. Pursue physical pleasure as ends in themselves. That's the first part. Remember I told you, Solomon went on a Charlie Sheen bender. And that's the best way to describe it. I'm talking alcohol. It doesn't say drugs, but who knows. Alcohol, money, entertainment, women by the hundreds. And he tells you, I, don't pursue that. As an end in itself, you'll be completely empty. It'll be like there's a hole in your heart. It's like trying to chase and catch the wind. You'll find that you're empty. So there's one error. People think they can pursue these things that God has given us as ends in themselves without seeing them as gifts from God to be enjoyed in the sphere that God has given us. But the other one, the other error is to abstain from all physical pleasure altogether. Both errors, both not true spirituality. True spirituality is enjoying the physical within the confines and the designs that God has given to pursue those things. That's true spirituality. Eat, drink, enjoy your wife. All good things. It doesn't make you spiritual not to do it. Last one, number five, do. Ecclesiastes 9.10. I always love this verse. You probably did too. You probably saw it on a coffee mug. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge of wisdom and shield to which you are going. There's that reminder of death again. But that first part, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. The command there is do. The kids these days, they have a, they have a saying. It's called full send. Did you guys know that? So I, it's part of my job to catch you up because I have two high schoolers, so I know these things. Full send. Full send emerged out of the, uh, actually extreme sports, the world of extreme sports. So maybe like you ever see like motorcycle jumpers, they jump and do a backflip, Superman thing. Well, that term emerged, they go full send, meaning they go at it 100% without hesitation, with everything. 
That's full send. That's literally what Solomon is telling you. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. Go full send on life. That's what he's saying. And not really what he's saying. It's what God's telling you. You're alive today. Time to live. You stay at home and take care of your kids? Do it with all your might. You go to work today? Whatever your field is, do it with all your might. You're lifting weights? Do it with all your might. You're taking your wife out on a date? You better date her with all your might. You're going to sing songs to the Lord? Now, I'm just going to critique some of the men here, and it just bothers me, okay? Because you don't sing with all your might. You know how I know? Because I've ran in formation for miles. You know what we sang? We sang with all our might about killing people. All right? Now, here, here we go, men. When, when, this is, when this is over, I want to hear you singing with all your might. I don't want to hear when the women put you to shame. Let it out. Okay, I want this place to shake with the voice of men singing. Whatever you do, do it with all your might. You get the picture, don't you? It's a reminder at the end that death is coming. Death is coming for all of us. It's certain. It's unpredictable. So you better live today. Matthew eleven nineteen. Have you ever considered that what was said about Jesus could not be said about you? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. What did they call him? A friend of tax collectors and sinners, a drunkard and a glutton. That's our Lord. Could that ever be said about you? If it can't, you haven't gone full send on life yet. Right? God commands you to live today. Not in the past, not in the future, today. And he's given you all of these things to enjoy. So do it. Solomon is really strongly urging us today, live your life. To God's glory, within the confines and the spheres that God has given where these things can be pursued and enjoyed, he blesses it, he already approves what you do. And we saw it, the certainty of death, the unpredictability of death. In the middle, what does God want you to know? He wants you to live today. He's given you a command, five of them, so you can get it. I said earlier, my goal is for Psalm 118.24 to be a reality for your life. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But how do we do that? How can we do that? How do we seize the day according to Psalm 118.24? Have you ever read that passage in context? Do you know what it's about? Only in Christ is that possible. This is what it says. I'll read it to you a little bit more of it. Psalm 118, 22 through 24. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What's the day the Lord has made? It's about the coming of Christ. The stone, that has been, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That verse is, is quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke. John didn't get it in there. And in Acts. All in reference to Christ. That Christ has come. People reject him. But we should be rejoicing in his coming. 
Psalm 118 is about him. He's the stone that the builders rejected. We are to rejoice in his coming. So if you want to actually live life to the full, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. You can't do it if you don't know Christ. You cannot live according to God's design and the amount of joy that he wants you to have apart from Christ. Jesus says that the thief comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. He came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus wants you to have a meaningful, joyful life filled with pleasure. Yes, even in a fallen world where the world is crazy. Death, sickness, all of the stuff. It's everywhere. But Jesus, he wants you to enjoy life. Jesus is no killjoy. People think Jesus is a killjoy. Jesus is not a killjoy. He's the epicenter of joy. He was at a party and he turned water into wine. You guys forgot that, didn't you? You forgot it. I wonder, if, I wonder if you'd be offended at Jesus. Because you're, you have this, so you're, you're stuck in this asceticism that you can't even enjoy what God has given. Jesus' parable of the kingdom, what is it? It's a party. I'm going to read it to you in its entirety. I hope you pay close attention to it. Because I want you all at this party. Jesus gives a kingdom of the parable of of God or of his kingdom, of his coming. What will it be like when Christ returns? Well, it's a big party. The parable of the wedding feast. This is Matthew 22, 1 through 4. 1 1 through 14. Listen to this. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And that's what I wonder. I've been inviting all of you to become Christians And not all of you have been answering the invitation. Why won't you come? He sent out his servants. He's calling you the wedding feast, but some don't come. And so he sends out other servants. Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, and my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops, and he destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. No doubt a reference to the second coming. Then he said to the servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. But go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding feast, as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But the king came in, and he looked at the guests, and he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to them, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, few are chosen. You're all called to the party. You're called. You're invited. Christ invites you. He's made a great wedding banquet, a great party. He's come and he's died for sinners. God doesn't ask you to do anything to enjoy this party. All he tells you to do is come. Come and be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's that last part. The guy, does it, he's got his own clothes on. He thinks he can get into heaven by his own good works. You have to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But you're all invited. God wants you there. Jesus wants you there. He wouldn't have invited you. Will you answer 
I wonder. I hope that you all would. Think of the love of Christ. How he died not for his sins, because he was perfect, but, but for ours. Crucified and died on a Roman cross. Buried. Raised three days later, victorious over even death. The thing which is a great teacher, he conquered it. He conquered death on our behalf. And you're alive today. And if you're alive today, you can respond to the party invite. I've got a neighbor walks by my house all the time. Older guy. I was out smoking, smoking some, um, some meat, so I was out there about eight hours a couple Fridays ago. He came by walking, and he came up and started talking with me. And Somehow uh, it came up, and I'm talking to him if he's a Christian or not. And he just said, no, I'm not. And I said, why not? He said, well, well, you know, I'll, uh, I'm going to think about it. I may get around to it one day and whatever. And I just said, hey, uh, I'm just going to be straight with you. Like, I live my life like it's the last day. Maybe that's because I used to be in the Army. Uh, but you're pretty old. Let's be honest. Uh, you didn't, might not have many more days. So don't think about it too long. I hope that's... Not you. You don't think, well, I'm young. I got a lot more days than your neighbor. You don't know that. You do not know that. A big, uh, big storm coming, right? How do we know that some of us won't die in it? We don't know that. So one last invitation to you. The certainty of death, the unpredictability of death, there's a command to live, and you can't obey it if you're not in Christ. And I want you all to be. So after the service ends, I'm going to stand at the back. I want to talk to you. If you want to know how do you become a Christian, I'll take you. We'll go somewhere private. We can talk. And I'll, and I'll instruct you on how to trust Christ. I hope that you would today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. As always, your word is so good to us. God, I pray that we would... We would learn how to live, live every day, to be, to be where we are, to enjoy the gifts that you've given us that are all around us, not to pursue food and drink and pleasure as ends in themselves, but to pursue them as coming from your hand, to be enjoyed within the confines that you've given them to us. And I pray that the joy that we have would become infectious to those that are around us, that they would want to know Christ too, so that they could, they could have abundant life as well. I pray for those that aren't Christians today. I pray that, God, that you would minister to them directly through the Holy Spirit, that you would open their eyes to behold the beauty of Christ, convict them of their sins, that they would see that their sin was so bad it took the death of the Son of God to atone for their sin, and that they would see not just the, how terrible their sin is, but they would see how great of a Savior you are, that they would run to you freely, laying aside all of their sin, willfully running to Christ. We know this can't happen unless you work by your Spirit. We ask that you would in Jesus' name. Amen.